It's time to craft your winning plan. You're listening to Scaling Up with host Tim Maitland, where industry experts in sales and business deliver the insights you need to step up your game. Let's scale up. Welcome to another great episode of Scaling Up. I'm your host, Tim Maitland, and today we're coming at you with another great episode. You know, I'm really excited about this episode because the show's called Scaling Up and we're talking about scale, right? You hear scale, whether you're in sales, whether you're in marketing, whether you're an executive, an engineer, you always hear the term scale each and every day in your business. And some of you might say, what does scale mean? You know, like some executives might say, how do I create scale? How do I lead scale? Others might say, how do I have full company buy-in around that project or that initiative or that company growth we're looking uh, you know, to create scale in? And today we have an incredible thought leader who is leading massive, massive enterprise scale each and every day in regards to global regions, new market segments, and, and even uh, you know, new capabilities for their company. So let's go ahead and bring them in. I have the president and CEO of Denali Water Solutions, Andy McNeil with us. Andy, how are you this afternoon? Tim, I'm doing fantastic. I really appreciate you uh, you having me. And I think that there's some interesting things about what we do and just the concepts of, of, of scale. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. Absolutely. Now, before we dive into uh, the good content, I got to ask you, I saw that you uh, went to Auburn uh, and you went to uh, Notre Dame. So there's a good chance that both those teams make a college football playoff in the upcoming season. So who do you root for if they're playing each other? You, you know, that's that's actually a really good problem to have, you know, especially if you like college football. Um, um, I like them both a lot, but Auburn, I like slightly more, you know, and so I guess I haven't had the opportunity yet where they play each other. So, uh, you know, uh, but, but I, you know, I have had the opportunity where Notre Dame, you know, gets to play Alabama, sort of our arch nemesis. Unfortunately, they haven't typically done very well, but, um, you know, so anyway, um, <laughs> so I would say Auburn. There you go. War Eagle. My, uh, my brother actually played baseball. Uh, at Auburn uh, back in 2003, so almost oh, 20 good. years ago. But I grew up a, a diehard uh, Auburn fan. Used to wear Auburn shirts to to middle school just about every day. So it, it pulls you in. <laughs> it, it does. It does. Plus, the home of Bo Jackson, so greatest athlete to ever live. That's right. I was there when he was there. So that's how old I am. you kind of just get the sense that you kind of know what exactly. Well, perfect. Well, Andy, uh, you know, tell us a little bit uh, about Denali. You know, obviously, who is Denali and, you know, what exactly do you guys do? Because you get your hands into a lot of pots and I'd love for the audience to hear a little bit more about you. Sure. You know, what, 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 so Denali is a company that you, that, that, that the folks listening have probably never heard of. Um, but we are in this really interesting niche in the United States. So Denali at a high level is a specialty waste and environmental services business. But to, to, but to frame it for you, um, in the United States, on one end of the spectrum, you've got solid waste. So think you know, tr- your typical household trash and landfills, and then hazardous waste on the other side. And in between those two is all of these different waste streams that are produced in the United States. And what's, the, what's interesting about those waste streams and just how they really evolve and change, and this will get back to scale at some point as well, is, is that you have a, a number of forces that are driving change in terms of the waste streams. One is, is that the things that we do to clean water, so when we clean water, we pull, pull basically uh, suspended solids and, and soluble solids out of that water to return clean water to the, to the watershed, and we take all of those residuals. 
Um, and there are um, thousands and thousands of, of water treatment plants all over the United States and uh, wastewater and water. Um, and then you've got a, a, all these different things that are no longer going into landfills. So things like organic waste, food waste of different, different stripes. And so what Denali focuses in is we basically try to serve five different market segments. So we service municipalities in the United States and we serve really large ones like New York City, um, uh, a number of them on the West Coast. We then service the food processing industry and we service really most food processors in the United States. If you could think of one, we probably already serve one of the plants, pulp and paper, and then food delivery. So in food delivery, we're talking about grocery stores and restaurants and then certain large industrial plants. And in all of these different market segments, these are market segments that are very infrastructure as to the United States. They all produce ongoing, reoccurring waste streams that you have to take care of responsibly, do different things with. And, you know, they all require, uh, you know, a certain amount of maintenance of those systems. And so we try to do a little bit of that. So what the company does is we do a little something in the four walls of the plants, cleaning out systems, haul waste away, and then we recycle that waste in different ways. So we're one of the largest composters in the United States, as an example. So we run compost facilities all over the United States. So um, we think we're doing something really positive for the planet. And we think that as long as we uh, can bring creative, cost-effective solutions to our customers, we'll enjoy the opportunity to work tomorrow. Absolutely. Um, you know, you're doing a ton for the planet and you're doing it at such a massive scale. And, you know, when it comes to your responsibilities, being president and CEO, you know, the initiatives that you're leading, the projects that you're scaling, you know, are really next level. You know, I'd like to just ask, you know, how did you get into that position of being president and CEO of Denali? Did you work your way through or did you come from another company within the industry? No, um, it was really a sequence of different events. So, when I got out of college, I worked in accounting and management consulting for about a decade. And in my very early 30s, I had this opportunity to come on board with two guys that had a small business that was, a, that was doing similar things we do today. And they happened to want to sell. Um, I didn't have any money and I had no experience of any kind, but, but I was there. <laughs> and so anyway, these guys, I, they made me the third partner. We grew that business substantially. We used a lot of other people's money. And it was a business that was similar to Denali. And really, the way you can think about it is a predecessor to Denali. Um, so I ran that business and was one of the owners of that for about a decade. We then sold parts of those businesses. I bought one of the pieces back, changed the name to Denali. And basically, while the other business was very successful, we had actually created the 23rd largest waste company in the United States. Um, there was things that I had not done the way that I really wanted to do. I thought there was more opportunity, other things to capitalize on. And so that's really what was the impetus to how we set Denali's course going forward. And so I did that in uh, 2014. And at the time, we started with about 30 employees and we have just a little under, you know, 1500 employees today. Wow. So let, let's kind of pause at that moment um, because it sounds like here you are, you take a little bit of a risk, right? You, you buy it back any sort of, anytime you do something like that, it's financial risk in anything. And then you create just insane scale. I mean, that was seven years ago. 
Um, what was step one? I mean, you said, you know, we wanted to go things about differently. You know, did you have to have everybody buy into that different vision? Was that the first step? Did you have to make, you know, massive investments and, and take out tons of different loans and lines of credit? I, I'd love to just hear that first step that initiated that massive scale. Well, okay. So in terms of being able to really build scale, okay. So, so here's what I really think. I really think there's an opportunity in the United States to create a business, a large business that's, that, that capitalizes on the leverage of the way that we can dispose various waste streams. Um, and the way that we can we use different disposal techniques, let's say, or recycling. A lot of what we do is we create fertilizers or we create feed, things like that. Various products from these various resources. So I think it's a combination, one, of having the right capital structure. So we need to make sure that we're in a position where we can support the growth that we think we can go get. Some of that growth is organic in nature. Some of that growth is acquisitive in nature. So we basically had strategic plans on both fronts. But like you sort of said in your question, we really need to have everybody buy into what, what, what does that really mean? And, is, and, 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 and so in this space, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, people feel pretty good about what we do. I mean, we take different waste streams and convert them. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of passion around that, you know, and so... So not only is it the right thing to scale and scalable, it is also something that's very purpose-driven. Definitely. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm in your shoes. I'm, I'm sitting there launching something. I know the industry well, but here we go. We're about to buckle up. What's that first bit of advice that you give me as an entrepreneur or as a uh, you know first-time CEO to get that company culture buy-in if I don't have something that might be something deemable to rally around that's doing good in the world? You know, what, what's that first bit of, of tip you'd give me? You know, I, I think that if I was talking to somebody about how you create scale, that was what I did. One of the things that's, that, that we experience at, at, our, at our company is we'll, we'll We'll go and let's say I'm talking to you and you have started a compost facility. And I'm just going to use my example, but you could use this in really any context. Just take out the word composting and put whatever else in. So many people, when they start their own businesses, they they basically do things where their success that makes them successful at one location is also the same thing that holds them back from creating two locations. So in the world of composting, what will happen is I'll meet people and they produce great compost. They understand what they're doing. They bring in different waste streams. But whether it is um, the way they manage, so let's just say they 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 try to do everything themselves, you know, and they don't do a, they don't effectively delegate work, or the way they set up the capital structure basically makes it where they can't they they, they really can't create the growth, and so. What I would say to somebody as really just as advice is, is that if you want to create scale and you're the entrepreneur, kind of step one is making sure that the way that you use capital allows you to create growth. Let me give you an example. So the way that we did things were, was when we used debt capital, what we wanted to do is you have choices, right? You can go get a loan and you can aggressively pay that loan off. 
right? And you can use all of your available capital to drive your loan down. But when you do that, you don't have enough available capital to create growth. Let's say you want to go build, in my case, the second compost facility. Well, that requires capital, right, to go do that. And this would be true regardless of what you're doing. You have upfront expenses. So we wanted a capital structure that allowed us to maximize the total amount of cash that we could maintain so that we could deploy those various strategies. You know, and so and I think the second element about this would be that that at least in terms of the way you set up your organization is, is that you actually set goals and objectives about creating that scale. So many people talk about it, but they actually don't do it. I'll meet different people and they'll say to me like, oh, well, we're growing massively. Next year, when you talk to me, we'll be double. And then I'll go see them next year and they're not double, right? They're the same size. And they will basically list all the things that got in their way. You know, hey, I got really busy or this thing happened or that thing happened. And so we make it a priority to focus on on, on growth. And, um, and and let me add one more point about why that is, why that's a good thing. Um, one of the things is it does for us is it creates so much more opportunities for people that work here. So if you're never going to grow, everybody's sort of in a static job, right? They're doing the same thing over and over. But when you make it a very dynamic growth oriented environment where you're really creating scale, you end up having interest in things like this. So, you know, somebody in the company might be doing three jobs. Let's say they're doing, you know, sales and marketing. Right. But you, as you grow, you, you need two people instead of one. And so people get to specialize or go to the things they really like. And you end up with, you know, with, uh, you know, interesting journeys as you go along for the employee base. So, Andy, you know, we, we talk about outside capital, um, you know, like lines of credit, things like that, taking massive loans and then, you know, maybe paying it off quickly or, or, or sitting on it. What about outside investors? You know, there's obviously kind of I, I think there's a pro and con of that. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur and, and I want to create massive scale. However, you know, now I take outside money, I give away some of my ownership or, you know, what if I just invest more into a heavy sales team and trust that my product will sell naturally? And then the more we sell, the more we retain clients, that's going to be able to give us the cash flow to scale. You know, take us down those two paths and any advice you might have on somebody kind of between those two roads. Yeah, on, 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 I, think, I think you really have a, a, a decision point. I think when you set up the company, so let me just use me as an example. I had a choice when I first bought the business back with when it had 30 employees where I could have taken out, let's just call it very normal, traditional bank loans, where I borrow money from a bank. The bank has no ownership. They have collateral in the business. And then we pay them back over time. Now, in that scenario, you you basically say, I am going to organically drive growth in this business. And, you know, I think in some realms, you can do that. So if you and I launch an IT platform or some web-based system, maybe that works. Maybe we catch word of mouth and we, we grow rapidly. But for the most part, if what you want to do is you want to really drive scale, drive growth, then you are going to need to think a little bit differently about how you use capital. And that actually can be a little tricky. And it can be tricky because not everybody really understands where all this money is. I mean, you hear things like, oh, there's this, you know, there's trillions of dollars sitting in private equity firms just ready to go. But 
you know, in my case, I'm not really using at least initially private equity capital. So, you know, it, there is a there is a hurdle for some people just to know, like, where do I turn? But what's interesting about it, Tim, is, is that once you sort of make the decision, if you make the decision to go for growth and scale and you set your capital structure up that way, it's very difficult to turn it around because you let people into your capital structure, as you pointed out, as you create the growth, you bring people into minority positions into your structure. And once you do that, it's hard to unwind that. Couldn't agree more um, with that. You know, the, the way we scaled market scale, um, you know, we'll, we'll tell our story a little bit is, um, so my brother and I started the company and, um, you know, we, we put in our own money uh, and we just kind of said, hey, look, uh, we've got X amount of dollars that, that we're going to put in. And the second the bank account hits zero, uh, you know, we're going home. And uh, first uh, first investment we made uh, were a couple sales guys and we were all selling together and, and servicing clients. And, you know, we made a decision that uh, one of the best ways to scale is retain clients uh, and, and pour money into customer service because obviously lower sales costs retaining clients uh, than always constantly having to, to get new ones and have a revolving door. So um, couldn't agree more, you know, with what you're saying. And, and when you, you know, go to a path really, you know, committing to it, you know, how important is it to build networks, uh, you know, when you're looking to scale and, and what does that look like? Well, I think it can mean different things, but I would say just at a high level, it's important. So you use the example of a customer. So, when we're talking about something like dealing with food processing plants in the United States. So, and I'll just, so one of our particular customers, which is one of the larger food processors in the United States, well, they have 80 something plants. And so one of the ways to create scale and scale quickly is by doing a good job at one location and then carrying that to many other locations. So that, you know, and that requires, you know, you to have something a little special, but if you're, you know, if, if what you're doing is creating a difference, capitalizing on different trends, then you can create that scenario. So in, in our case, when you're talking about a waste stream that, you know, where you can offer slightly lower pricing, but where you're recycling or reclaiming or, re, you know, repurposing that, that waste stream, not only does that meet people's financial goals and objectives, it also meets a lot of their corporate edicts in our case. So, you know, it's it, it, there, there is an, an element of doing that. Now, I would say that there's other networks as well that drive things. So let me give you another example. So in the United States, there's 16,000 wastewater municipal wastewater treatment plants and thousands of more water treatment. Now, every single town and every whether it's a big or small, has a consultant engineer, a little bit like having an outside auditor. And, you know, generally speaking, small little plants have local engineers or state engineers, people that were operating within the state. And then the large cities are using national engineering firms. These engineers have an influence over what is, um, you, know, you know, on people's reputations, on what cities do. And so getting yourself in those networks and working within those networks is another way to create credibility and scale. 
you know, you bring up a good point there, um, Andy, in regards to, you know, doing a good job at one location and then being able to, you know, scale throughout others. You know, what we're looking at right now is is such a weird time. I mean, look at lumber, for example, just material cost and and just what's happening. Uh, you, just 2021 is not a normal year for planning, for scheduling, for purchasing, for, for buying, for selling, whatever it might be. Um, you know, some companies are benefiting from their industries being on, on the good side of everything. Some uh, companies are struggling with their industries being on the bad side of everything. You know, Denali, you have had insane scale the last two years. So kind of two questions with that. You know, tell us about what you've been doing the past two years and, and what that scale is and what it's leading to. And then are you strategically using the current times to add even more scale to Denali? would love to hear your thoughts. Sure. So in terms of just how we've created a lot of growth, we've continued to hit our targets on our organic growth, but we've been really aggressive on the acquisition front. And the, the reason that we do that is because things that we do in, in, in require a lot of environmental permits. And oftentimes those environmental permits are very difficult to get. And so as you enter different markets or states, et cetera, acquiring companies really helps. And what we can do in terms of just scaling it up is oftentimes they do one thing. Now, remember before I told you we're really focused on five different markets, you know, they might be focused on one market we get their sort of platform, if you will, and then begin to address the other markets to create a lot of growth and scale. Um, so what we've done is we've acquired a number of companies in the last number of, of months. You know, for example, like I think in January alone, January and December alone, we bought seven companies. Now, they're generally smaller companies, but that's the sort of thing that we're doing pretty aggressively. Now, you know, one of the things that's interesting about doing scale is there's also a timing aspect to it. It perhaps wasn't exactly what you were asking, but just to kind of put a point to this. So you have different things in the United States, different trends. So one trend is that states, California, New York, Massachusetts, Maryland, et cetera, have put laws on the books to say that food waste and green waste, and each one's a little bit different than the next, can no longer go into landfills. And so what we're trying to do is capitalize on that trend by having the infrastructure built out where we can be kind of a one-stop shop um, for these different waste streams. So there's, there's definitely strategy to how we think about scale. So if you don't mind me asking, I mean, how do you balance that investment? I mean, in one month alone, you, you acquire seven companies, obviously, you know, extremely hefty spend there. How are you, how are you balancing that investment? We'd love to just hear that. Well, if you were talking about the investment from a, a fiscal perspective, um, there's a couple of different ways we have to balance it. One is uh, I'll do fiscal first and then I'll just talk about just pure integration. But, you know, for us, and this is another sort of scale element, um, you, you know, by having the right partners, you can deploy capital if everybody has the same conviction around capital deployment and strategy. Now, um, and, and they've got the right type of investors that they have into their pools of capital. So let me compare and contrast that for a second, just to make the point. When you're a little bit smaller and you do your, you know, your first acquisition or two, and you need more capital, you need somebody else's money. Generally, there's some cost to that capital, right? And one of the components of cost may be that you give up a little bit of equity. 
So you do that, you have now have a new partner, so to speak. They're not active in the business or anything like that, but they're in the capital structure and they expect a return. And so as soon as you want to make the next move on the chessboard, um, you've got to go back to that same source or maybe another source and bring them in. So in my case, what happened is over time, I had to bring more and more sources in. That slows down your scale because you are, you know, even though they don't make decisions, they still can decide whether or not they put money in. As we've gotten bigger, we've been able to go to, you know, smaller numbers, smaller groups, but with bigger checkbooks, and we can move much faster. Of course, doing these different acquisitions requires us not to mess them up. So we also have to have internal scale. Um, and what that means is we perhaps have more people than we might otherwise have that are helping us work on things like integration, you know, plugging up computer systems and stuff and the like. So that's a very important element too. Definitely. Now, you know, kind of diversifying it that way is, is, is you kind of, are you controlling risk management working that way as well? Well, we're trying, you know, so, <laughs> uh, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, um, you know, here I am saying all these great things about acquisitions, but, you know, you could probably find lots of different articles or, you know, different statements people have made about, you know, the, you know, the, the demise of their businesses based on bad acquisitions. So, you know, part of the risk management for us is decision making and making the right decision related to acquisitions, making sure we're not taking too much risk. And so for us, that it, for us, that means that the things that we're buying really um, we can we can envision, you know, the, the, a big downside for any one particular acquisition and know that that's not going to. Uh, really harm the mothership, if you will, you know, and so that's one of the ways that we sort of focus in on that um, to manage risk. You know, I know that that that's a big area that I think keeps companies from scaling is is the risk, right? High risk, high reward is something I think every executive believes in. But being able to say, you know what, we're going to create this massive scale and uh, it could, you know, not make or break our company, but it could, you know, launch our company to a whole other trajectory or it could, you know, set us back. You know, I want you to speak to kind of your counterparts and, um, you know, let's say I'm I'm a CEO at a, uh, you know, multiple hundred million dollar revenue company approaching a billion dollars. And that, that's my goal. What advice would you give me in this moment? So the summer of, of 2021, where there's a lot of, uh, you know, balls in the air, a lot of question marks. What advice would you give me if I'm looking to acquire uh, a lot of companies in the space, if I'm looking to add a whole new market segment I sell into? I uh, would love to hear, you know, a little bit of coaching advice there. Sure. So I, I think that um, what I would say to somebody is, and let's just, let's just give two examples of how this could potentially play out. Well, example A is, you're a company, let's say you're, you know, $250 million in revenue and you're trying to get to a billion. And an option A is you're doing a bunch of small acquisitions because there's a lots and lots of companies. And in our space, there's tremendous fragmentation. So in fact, that's really how it is. And so there, what's really important is for us to have an M&A team that knows what they're doing, that can get on the field and go rapidly. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to go give someone an offer and then it lingers for nine months 
while we're trying to decide what we want to do. And so the way that you go fast is you have the right people, but you also have it ready from a financing perspective and from a legal perspective. So that's how I would think about it in that context. You know, I think that I think that the other way, which is I'm the same $250 million business, my industry is a little bit more mature. Um, I think there it's there's more of a art and science. And so what I would say to somebody there is that um, let me try to put it in the right words here. I would think what you would do is you would spend your time as an executive of the company cultivating relationships with other counterparties and competitors, you know, and creating a strategic vision where the companies come together, which is really hard, Tim, because oftentimes companies of those scale have private equity folks that are in the deal. That means that there's different expectations about returns, exit strategies, um, relative value of the companies. There's a lot to overcome. So that's where I said it's more art because you've got to be able to articulate this grand vision. And, you know, I think that's and I think that's a differentiating factor. So then, you know, that brings up a point. Let, you acquire a company, let's say it had a, you know, very family atmosphere where, let's say, you know, grandpa started it, ran it for, you know, 40 years, son takes over and then, you know, they get acquired. And, and folks who have been there for, you know, 20 years are used to more of this family environment and then here comes the big player in the industry acquiring them, and now they're rolling into that business. How do you how do you merge cultures? You know, this might sound a little bit harsh, but you know, do you have to cut ties with with a lot of folks in that world, or uh, are there strategic ways where you kind of allow them to buy into the culture of you know company A who is rolling them into themselves? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's it's the it's something that's so important to get the culture step correct. Um. So, and we're not always perfect at it. Now, I will say, I think we've got a pretty good track record. And if you just look at our just management in general, we have extremely low turnover. I mean, really, really zero. Um, but what I would say is this, is when we're buying a small little company, um, for us, from a cultural perspective, is when we're doing diligence, it's part of what we do in diligence to just, you know, to understand, you know, what's this change going to look like and are we going to have any issues? And on smaller ones, we, we, we basically adopt our policies, our procedures, et cetera. But we try to do it in a really respectful way where it's not like, gee, we're smarter than you are. But it doesn't make sense for us to have competing safety uh, management you know, programs, things like that. Um, and so those are sometimes a little bit easier. And they are because there's less risk. Um, if you're buying just a one-off thing, where it's a, where it's much much more challenging is we've bought bigger organizations, and you know I think that I, I think that what we try to do as a as a team is have thoughtful transition plans where we've tried to anticipate you know any issues we have. And you are right, there are times where people are just not going to cut across the canyon. And we just recognize that. So we, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to somebody that we're buying, I'm like, you know, look, we want to keep everybody, but I understand there's some people that won't get there and that's okay. And, you know, and, and so instead of them sabotaging things, we try to actually help them out if they're in that category to help them make the next step. Yeah. You know, I think everybody's obviously going to respond differently and, 
Um, I think prob you probably have, you know, a certain amount of assets set aside to be able to coach and train and make sure that they get ingrained in that culture. You know, I think sometimes, you know, education uh, is such a good way to drive culture too. And, you know, when you come in from the outside, you know, they just don't know your way. Um, they probably don't, they don't have, you know, you don't have their trust yet, but by pouring into their career and, and giving them educational resources that help sharpen them or help them understand the vision of the company, um, you know, I, I think education can fix a lot of issues as well. Oh, it does. You know, one of the things we did here that I, that I'm, that I really like, and we're, we're in the process of tinkering with it a little bit, but we're actually creating um, a number of, uh, of education opportunities for people within the, in the company. And I'm not really referring to like onboarding training, like how to use a pump right. or something, but, but really more about, but about leadership in general. So it's aimed at different groups of people, but, and, you know, but part of it doing that really well is to, really hone in around purpose. And so one of the things that we did when we launched the business was we actually used a number of things from Kung Fu Panda. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but I'm assuming you yeah. have. <laughs> Jack and Black so, is the voiceover. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, so one of the, one of the things that we had was like to be bodacious, you know? And so, and, and, and the reason we like that is, you know, we wanted it to be where people felt like, you know, we're going to go out and try new things. We're going to go out and try to be the leader. That means we may have, you know, a bullseye on our back at different times, but that's who we want to be. And, you know, I think for the people that work here, it set a culture of, you know, empowerment, trying things out, not getting, you know, you know, getting rewarded for, you know, taking, I don't mean risks in a political risks, let's just say within a company, you know, um, you know, so it, it created in our world, it, it created innovation and new ideas and, you know, and a lot of excitement. Now, as we've gotten bigger, um, we're trying to find better ways to articulate that, that reaches across all of our employees. You know, perhaps we'll still use Be Bodacious in, um, amongst other things, but it was part of what really got us going. I love that. Be Bodacious. That might be the my month theme from here on out. I might, I might steal that from you guys. <laughs> Feel free to shamelessly steal all the good ideas. <laughs> oh, well, Andy, uh, you know, I really appreciate you jumping on, scaling up, and uh, just bringing a, a true enterprise uh, conversation here uh, to the listeners. Uh, anytime you want to come back on and talk about how Denali's scaling or any other uh, company initiatives, you know, I think you're a perfect executive to mirror. So very, very thankful for you sharing your insights with us. Yeah, and I really appreciate the opportunity, Tim. I wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing. And um, certainly if we can be of help, um, we're here. And and so just, you know, thanks a lot for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thank, thanks a ton. Well, listeners, I appreciate you checking out another great episode. And uh, love that you got to all hear from the president and CEO of Denali, Andy McNeil. Until another episode, you guys keep scaling and we'll chat with you soon.